What's up, everybody? We're back. Broken City Artist Podcast. Um, we have a special guest. Mike, why don't you uh, do the introductions? Ah, yeah, I was talking to Adam about my friend Ian Grom. Um, those of you in, involved in the, the marching arts know him well. I thought it'd be a, a cool thing, kind of a, a mixing of worlds, um, to dive into a little bit about Ian that we, we don't know. Um, Hopefully not too much. <laughs> <laughs> he is a little I got alien. some skeletons. <laughs> um, one of the things, I, I guess, uh, kind of to start the whole thing rolling, um, I, I know a little bit about you before the drum corps scene, the, the indoor scene, uh, but I think it would be interesting, um, your thoughts on what you did, the, the pathways that you chose early in life and the skills that you developed and the experiences you had pre-drumline, right. pre-indoor, <laughs> how have you utilized those? How have those uh, contributed to your, I think anyone would, would recognize as massive success Thank you, in, sir. This, in this industry, that there's, there's something there that was developed before you've developed the skills that you have now, the very specific skills you have. And let me jump in really quick and say, for those of you who are watching that come maybe from my world or whatever, if you're about to turn this off, <laughs> don't. <laughs> History of a band geek, see ya! <laughs> Google Ian Grom. Ian Grom, and look, you know, Pulse is one of the groups that you work yep. for, right? And uh, he's a Vic Firth. Yeah. Artist, yeah, box. Yeah, we six. just came out with my new signature mallets with Vic Firth. And I just looked at those today. Yeah, so stuff's going great, and box six is jamming lots of original composition and lots of stuff out there. So. Awesome, yeah. So, so if you want to pause, Google that, and then come back, and you'll be interested. Yeah, <laughs> if you're not already. All right, cool. So, or you'll definitely not be interested, and we'll never see you. Yeah, and then we didn't waste <laughs> your time. So, to answer your question, yeah. yeah so, what was the? Um, I think probably what is. When people ask me that, the most different thing about me of someone that's we consider successful in the activity is I didn't do it at all. I was never, I never marched drum corps. Oh, really? Yeah, I never did anything of any merit. I went to a little crappy music program in Fullerton at uh, Sunny Hills High School. Before that, I was at Fullerton High, and these were very early days when the percussion programs we didn't have metronomes. I didn't know what a triplet roll was. These are things I, like, I didn't have the skill sets that I, you uh -huh. mean like ten percent of the kids now. I mean, I don't even have that knowledge. It's absolutely insane what I didn't have. And I think because of that, that's what drove me to go to school for music. I went to Cal State Long Beach for music performance, but it wasn't like, it wasn't an option to like, well, I'm gonna balance drum corps and indoor, and then, well, maybe I'll put off college. It was like, at that age, it was like, nope, you go to music school if that's what you wanna do. Yeah. So did, did you, were you in like garage bands? Or oh, or yeah. Were I, you, were I think you focused I focused on drum set? You were a piano player first. No, right? no, okay. no, no, no. Drum set for sure. Okay. I like played crappy alto sax in third grade. That lasted six months. Right. What an evil experience that was. And um, <laughs> I played piano a little bit as a kid, but then never touched it again until really like by the time I was in high school. I didn't actually start playing drums until I was about 14, 15, okay. like my sophomore year of high school. So I was like a late bloomer. Um, it just happened to be that my cousin came over, visited us while I was like in eighth grade, and uh, he started playing the drums. My cousin is now the associate principal percussionist with the uh, St. Louis um, Orchestra. Oh, so yeah. He's well, awesome. such a, oh, sorry, Kansas City, he's going to kill me if he sees this. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, he's an absolute monster in the orchestral percussion world. But he's my younger cousin, and I was like, oh, drums are cool. Ah, whatever. He left. <laughs> Never thought about it again. And one day, I just asked my dad. We had moved back to California. And I was like, so I'm thinking about maybe playing the drum. And before I could get the word out, he's like, flew out into the garage, grabbed all the drums from the garage, and like was starting to set up the kit. And he's like, yeah, sure, what do you want to play? I can show you some stuff. No way. He got, he got me some boom, boom, ba, 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 doom, ba. Uh, the Guitar Center the special. Uh, we yeah. call it the beat of the street. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's even better on the on the uh, synthetic drums. So I'll yeah. use the in the pad. <laughs> exactly. That's my favorite. So that was yeah. like the initial thing. And if you fast forward through that, um, although I did marching band, it was certainly not something I was passionate about. I really loved playing drums and being in bands. So. And what was an early influence? So we can get a sense of what your headspace was like. Were you like a as a drummer? Or were you into oh, I love classic rock. I love classic Mitch rock. Mitchell. I love Ginger okay. Baker. Um, heavy, heavy into that stuff. And the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Chad Smith was like, that was it. Sweet. That was the be all end all. Uplift Mofo Party Plan? A little later, because Blood Sugar Sex Magic at that age uh, was more big than like the more punky stuff that was earlier. Yeah. That took that, a while. That's what got me into it. Yeah. And then but when, like, when, that, when that album came out, I was actually. I was moving away from it. Well, because, like yeah. And Mother's Milk, which came right yeah. after that. And they that wasn't even Chad Smith. That wasn't even Chad Smith. Is that 92, no. 93? Uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Yeah. yeah. But then up with Mofo Party Plan was more the punkish stuff yeah, with yeah. Um, Jack, Jack Irons. Oh, yeah. 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 That's the stuff I was into. Um, and that was like, in, you know, when Pearl Jam was coming out and all this stuff was super heavy, that was a big influence then. So. This thing of like having marching band on the radar as a kid was like, what? I want to play Green Day tunes. I want to play yeah. Chaparu, Chaparu, Chaparra. You know, all the so, Trey, the Trey Cool fills and all that crap. Singing in an English accent. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not English. That's strange. <laughs> and modern drummer and all that crap. You know, like the mid '90s oh, yeah. was like the glory days of oh, wanting totally to like was. read magazines and do all that. So that was my influence. So we're probably up. very close in age. Yeah, I'm 36. I just yeah, turned 36. 40. Yeah. Yep. So, so I think without the internet and all that stuff. I think we have a, all have a similar upbringing in that, like, you were really more immersed in the MTV culture and, like, the grandeur and spectacle and idea yeah. of being a rock star. There weren't as many other options. You just had that singular mindset of, like, I'm going to make it. I can do this. Yeah, there was a real veil over what the mechanics of the music industry was really about, but there yeah. was also more of, like, a mystique about touring. You couldn't just, like, get on the Internet and have access to the world. You right. You actually, like... There was a limit to, to information world. and stimulus that kind of, I think, spurred more, like, even if it was false, you thought you could make it. Mm -hmm. And there were more gigs back then. I Which mean, I think that's, that's like, the definition of blissful ignorance, I think, because you, now you get online and it's easy to, to be discouraged. Yeah. I mean, you, there's so many good drummers mm -hmm. that if you're the kind of person that's a little bit, like, that maybe needs to feel like you're the best around or... Need, I don't know. Yeah, and then a video of a 12-year-old kid in Ghana playing on tin cans, <laughs> and you're like, I'm done. I, can't, I can barely hold my sticks. I'm, I'm out. Yeah, exactly. It is it is disheartening, and it's like I do think it's one of those things that if you're one of those kids that thrives off that, I'm going to copy them. But if you're an insecure kid, like I know a lot of my students are, if they don't have that encouragement of letting them know that, right. dude, you can get there. It's going to take time. Right. I can see it doing some of the opposite. I think so there's too much information. That, having that, that toggle between being a fan being able to experience and take in all of that all that media and use it as oh how cool is this oh check this out and it can, it can kind of shape who you are without letting the ego be affected mm -hmm. yeah I think the problems are is in both extremes you know if you're if all that information is discourages you or all that information makes you think oh now I know what to copy 
in both cases, the the uniqueness of the individual is sort of like lost a little bit. Yeah. You don't feel like, oh, I can just be me and have a certain approach. They're kind of just a mirror of, of whatever they've seen through a screen. Yeah. It's very weird. And I would say more to the point of what you originally asked and how it transitions into this, my biggest thing was I was that immersed in like how a kid would be immersed in YouTube when I walked onto the campus at Long Beach State and it was like, what? West African drumming, steel drum, music theory, everything. Yeah. So all these things, these endless avenues that kids have now, I was able to have in real life with real people, with real teachers for six years. Would you, you, know? say, would you wow. say that that, you're, that the momentum of, of um, you know, where you eventually end up, but that, that start, that, that catalyst was more based in, in honing your skills, like the, the I guess the, it doesn't have to be literal, but like going into the, into the rehearsal space and just, you know. Oh my God, yeah. Know, well, I had a transition. Or was, was it more like, like you're out at the clubs every night playing gigs? Oh God, no. I was, okay. I was an absolute you're hermit in the shed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was all I could do. It was like, well, I don't have that much piano background. I don't have that much mallet skills. I can't really, oh my God, I have to do it all right now. And mm -hmm. so freshman year was like, it was like staring into a strobe light for a year straight and not knowing what to do and just shutting down. And sophomore year, I realized, oh, so if I'm not practicing eight to 10 hours a day, I'm screwed. So that was the decision-making of like, I'm so far behind, I'm either gonna win or I'm going to lose. And right now I'm losing badly. So I just decided like, screw this, I'm putting everything in. I'm saying yes to every performing ensemble. I don't care if it's playing timpani for the third brass ensemble or being the drummer for the third jazz band. It was like, I will say yes to every gig and do everything under the sun and work myself. I think that's an interesting, left. That's an interesting well, mix of, of uh, not just you know, self-motivation and, and, and having being goal-oriented, but, but also um, courage. Like just or stupidity. Well, <laughs> they could be intertwined. Just, as you're as you're speaking, I'm I'm trying to put myself in that context, mm -hmm. and it's it's so not the road that 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 I chose. And I can honestly say that that I would, even knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have done that. And it's so I, I would I say respect, the same. Knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have done it. Well, it was like that youthful <clears throat> stupidity and that almost like ignorant self confidence. They're like, I can do this. I, I got this. I did not have that, but no one told me no. Right, so I right. just fired a million miles an but hour. I think it's. It's. I think it's just. Be, I mean, because I know more about you than than just what you said here today. But it's an interesting mix of how personality with just goals that that everybody has. Everyone has yeah. goals, but you you have that that perfect mix of personality which removes fear, and then you just throw yourself out there. So what was the underlying drive? Like, did you? look around you and was it a competitive spirit or like there was a good mix of like people that you knew that were in school you're like okay they're probably not going to be professional percussionists but there was this pocket of guys back in like the late 90s and early 2000s especially like right when i got into cal state long beach in 98 there's this handful of players that were like what i mean i would watch these guys play congas or whatever they were playing and they were great at everything monster drum set players great grad students all these dudes that were like I don't know what you're doing, just teach me one thing. How do I do the Brazilian swing? How do I do this? How do I do that? How do you learn all of these songs? How do I play marimba? What the hell is going on? Did you have a goal in mind or was it hell, just being great? Just like just massive sponge and full immersion in the most variety of things humanly possible. Because I knew it wasn't just about playing drum set. And it was like, I went there specifically to learn more about the world percussion stuff. 
learning all, all the Brazilian stuff, the West African drumming, yeah. steel drum, all that. And then the more I was in there, I like sophomore, junior year, no goals. Just get through your classes, kick ass, and practice as much as you can. And then you start to like crystallize a vision, I think, towards the end. You start to see the end coming and go, yeah. wait a minute. This Almost just like is. sometimes when you're like writing a piece that you just know you're like kind of amassing like sounds or ideas and like you know that like you have to just do this work and eventually like oh look oh mm -hmm. I made David <laughs> oops <laughs> did did commerce ever come into play like because you're, you're you're speaking I, I can I could picture you as that that fresh college kid mm. but at any point did you did you think how am I going to make a living at this and oh I took out a crap load of student loans and it racked up a crap load of uh, credit card debt massive Mm -hmm. So is that 100%. when you were like junior, senior? You're like, oh yeah. What's well, the reality? I, it took me six years to finish because of all the undergrad classes, and really, I was taking like, I'd be taking twenty units in a semester and take one GE. <laughs> Everything else was like performance ensembles right. and anything that I could do to play. So it took me forever. I was in my sixth year of college taking math 101 because I just had to get the math class out of the way. Well, so I was like the guy in the front of the class like, shut up guys, I have to pass this. I have to graduate. I practice for eight hours today, my recital's tomorrow. Just shut the hell up. I was like, like the cranky the old, old man. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> get off my lawn, I don't care how many beers you drink. <laughs> that was me. Well, yeah, I, I guess it just fascinated by, um, obviously you had you had to have had the support of your of your family. Of course, yeah. And but a lot of it was then they took out a loan and I took out a loan. And then by senior year, like double senior year, I was starting to gig with my teachers. So and I was getting Sunday church gigs and I was starting to like build my infrastructure as a gigging musician okay. before I got out. So you did see like a, there's some sort of end net result. Yeah, to I did your, stop sucking your, eventually. Well, <laughs> just, just the, the, like where do you see yourself as you're in as you're in college and you're, you're trying to you know be that sponge where do you see yourself in five years and ten years and like, did that ever oh yeah come into mind constant fear and panic yeah but i think it's as difficult as that is it's the constant mini victories the appreciation of your teachers or your oh, peers yeah. and you you know that you're on the right path and the encouragement that people are pushing you there versus like you know maybe percussion's not for you buddy you know <laughs> no one had to have that one but i i mean i remember specifically uh michael spyro um handing my ass to me after uh we were at a rehearsal and i was just playing like a little too busy and he's like yo ian come here let's have a talk and Ooh. i never remember having two buttholes <laughs> ever so wide i mean he gave me a brand Just new one that, i mean it created a black hole in the universe that was like had its own gravitational pull and it changed my life it like really got me on the straight and narrow of like not bullshitting my playing and then That's i found you don't guy. get really on youtube in the same way you might get bad comments but no i remember the same thing like i remember melvin davis like a moment when i did a jazz gig and i had listened to the wrong guys for a minute or whatever it was and I just like didn't groove because I was like a groove drummer sort of like exploring jazz and I just remember that that day when I was just like I was just kind of playful the whole time and he took me aside on the break and was like man I got you on this gig because of groove got a groove like he just really like, like oh my god it. and I just remember thinking like and you get getting your butt kicked by like a mentor type figure Jesus. is like Life so changed. meaningful and it wasn't over text it's like you yeah. really have to deal with well, the person in front of you, you yeah know? Like, and i think in the marching activity people get their heads handed to them all the time it's kind of like by yeah. nature someone's just looking over but there's not like 
a pro there's always like that weird unspoken professionalism that it's like that guy's terrible i'm just not going to hire him again they're not going to go out of their way to rip you a new one just to do it and then go have fun on the gig right there was another guy um russ miller he didn't rip me a new one but russ miller you know in session player yeah uh -huh. i went to go have some lessons with russ and he just was like okay so here's the problem boom and just like broke it down like, here, here's why your time sucks. Here's what you need to do. You need to do this. You need to do that. This was after I graduated from college and was, like, gigging professionally. Wow. And now I'm finally hearing really what was wrong, which deep down, I knew there was something a little dicey. I couldn't put my fingers on it, and everyone was like, man, you're such a great drummer. Play all these gigs. But then I would never get, like, that great of takes done in the recording session. And Russ just, like, opened up the universe and opened up my eyes, and then I saw time and tempo and pocket, and it was like, then it closed back up. He's like, but you don't get it yet. You have to do this and this. And that was right when I decided I was going to give up on my playing career, actually. Wow. Yeah. After I saw that. Kinda un it was like you were... Uh, it was a, a tough, little bit late to the party, or something. It was. It was kind of. Uh, it was kind of a tough time for me, man. This was right around 2006, 2007, right when like my teaching career was starting to pick up, but my playing career was taking over. Like, so I'd be, hey man, I can't be at this competition, and John would be like, what do you mean? You you have to be there. I was like, no, I got this gig. This guy's gonna be there taking out the band, you know. <laughs> Yeah. And so I had to make a decision, and like I had uh, done big gigs, and I was like, man, I've opened up for Aerosmith. I have many patches on my belt. I'm important, but it, none of it mattered when Russ like kind of neutered me in a very teacher-friendly way. Like it's interesting, a, what you went through college, and no one, and, and no one, had no one that. really spotted it, or it was like I was advanced enough that they're like, good job. It was yeah. There's a little contention I have for that situation, and like. Not really getting the info when I was doing that time, those 10 hours a day, how much bad habits were starting to get enforced, you know, and really that's being able thing to with bury a click and doing all those things. Yeah, that's not in a book. You can study Afro-Cuban rhythms for drum set, but you can't just go like, bury the Met, go. Right. Tune your snare down fat so it doesn't sound like crap on the recording. What? No, nobody, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. Yeah, and that's the kind of stuff you don't get, um, I think, or you're not as likely to get in a school setting at, in, as opposed to a mentor setting, mm -hmm. where you're really one-on-one -on -one with somebody who ha who can like really get inside the machinery of what you're doing and the, and the art and the craft and separate the two. And da -da -da. Whereas I think what? that whole like learn this groove, okay, you got it. And you get half an hour a week, maybe an hour a week of private lessons. The whole not. rest of your musical life for that week you're relatively unsupervised to wow. fail quite significantly if you put your energy in the wrong direction, you know? Yeah. The bad habits that can be formed tempo-wise or your interpretation of stuff when you don't have someone actively watching after you. Yeah. That's why I'm such an absolute overlord over my drum set players. I mean, I feel sorry for the poor kids, but after one year with me, all of my drum set kids just turn into like mental ninjas. Because I'm thinking like, God damn it. If I can do one thing in the world, I'm gonna do everything for every one of these drum set players that no one did for me. I'm gonna make them understand that every damn note counts. Every touch, every symbol, every rim shot consistency, every kick drum that's a little out, I'm gonna punch you in the kidney until it's right. <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't have that. And that's the one thing every drum set player needs if you wanna just be like. Have you tried electro thought shock therapy for this? <laughs> <laughs> a may have blow darts <laughs> to the neck. I just thought that, it's a big birth movie? product. Yeah. What's, what's the movie that, like, the jazz? Oh, oh yeah. uh, uh, the whiplash. Yeah. whiplash. Don't do that. I'm practicing. <laughs> I don't know if that's really how I would practice, but yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. Hollywood. Yeah, indeed. So what was, um, I hear your story, and I see like a love for drum set, yeah. and then this strange situation where you were um, almost like the, the veil was lifted and you saw yourself through Russ Miller's eyes, and then, yeah. and then you had, you raised your own bar to that same level, and that almost led to a discouragement? Am I hearing you oh, right? Well, it Where was basically said, like, hey, cool, you need to relearn everything you've ever known about drum set. And that make you kind of back away from it? Oh, yeah. Okay. I was like, dude, I put, if I count college up to then, it's like, well, I'm like, I'm like eight, nine years deep, like fully committed to this instrument. And now it's like every little movement I make and everything in my whole concept of time isn't quite right. And at the same time, my writing career was starting to take off. And then... I really had to have like kind of a come to Jesus with myself to figure out wow. what do I really want out of life? Do I just want to be someone's hired gun? Because I really started to love even these like dorky little crappy high school programs that I started. I remember like Mike watching Edison High School in 2005 mm -hmm. and be like, hey man, these guys are pretty good. Like, really? <laughs> Mike Dixon talk to me? I was so happy, and this is like, I'm already out of college, I've done like TV shows and all this stuff, but I was totally fanboyed out that Mike had come up and mentioned uh, something, and it was like first group I ever taught, first time I'd ever done indoor, but there was something there that was like a new discovery, a new way of doing music that I didn't understand what the hell was going on. And it's protected from the evils of the music industry. Correct. So the corruption and the money control, and everything. Building people up. You're and if you fail at the writing, you can just fix it the next day. Not like, oh, you biffed that track, you're never going to work again. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's really more... I it mean, was like a real-time composing wheelhouse. Track. Yeah. <laughs> but I really connect to it in a, in a way, because I, you know, Mike was my percussion instructor when I was in high school. And then I went off and, and I have a career in the music industry. And now coming back and being a part of Broken City, not only is it like nostalgically awesome, and, and an activity that I have that I have love for, but the way that the arts are dealt with, and the way that you, the bar that you set for, um, both of you set for, you know, what's great and what's not, isn't like what sells and what isn't. And I realize there's what wins and what doesn't. That right. That still is there, and that kind of is parallel in a way to to commerce. monetization and commerce and stuff. But. It really is, though, you you guys have a choice to go, like, you know, I'm going to look at this artistically, and I think that the overall impact of that will be will be reflected in the judges' scorecards, but, like, it really matters what we do here and what the experience of the kids is, and, like, yeah, there's a purity in that that I think trumps the... It's it's better. Right. Well, we're, we're creating an money. experience. We're not just creating something that you press play and someone enjoys it, and then they put it on their playlist and work out to it. It's like, mm -hmm. we're taking X amount of months of our lives and dedicating it to these 40 kids and whoever else is in their interconnected circle. And so we've got them for that six months, whether they stay, whether they leave, whatever, they're with us having like a visceral experience, the goods, the bads, the uglies. It's not just like, let's make something and see if we can make some money off of it. You know, yeah, almost culture. all of us are just vastly sacrificing our personal time um, to make it work because the end for me, there's nothing more gratifying that I've ever done than when we get to the end of an indoor season that was like a show I was really proud of. And I'm sure you can relate. There's no tour I ever did, no gig I ever played, no check I ever got that was infinitely as rewarding as seeing our products like come to life so, with the kids. It's because it's so, it's such on a large scale. Yeah. With the, the amount of, of time and the, the 
the depth that it reaches into your personal life, even as a performer, mm. you know, coming up with the the fees and all the rehearsal time and, and the gas money and sitting on the freeway and, and the, traffic. And, and the horrible thing. things that can happen in your personal mm -hmm. life while that's happening. I mean, these are real kids mm -hmm. with real problems. Some these kids, like, they don't have parents. They have really tough lives because they're young adults, especially like the independent world kids. Mm -hmm. When you really find out the backstory of these kids that drive from Arizona or drive from Fresno yeah. to do this thing, that's like not like making a, that's not just making a song. It's like we have to create a life experience with them for a year. And you know, sometimes it's not always like your ideal vision, but seeing that many people committed to it. And for me, even that, because I'm at almost every rehearsal, like at Pulse, let's say, that has a lot more emotional investment for me than other projects I've worked on where I've been happy with the music, but I don't have as direct connection, not only with the kids, but the teaching process to know every little ins and out of why it's not working. It's just like, yeah, that, I mean, that was cool, but I wasn't on the road that much. So eh, I'm, glad it's, I'm glad it's okay. Right. Versus indoor ends and you're like, <laughs> just, you know, yeah. get a little misty eyed. Yeah, that's great. The, those kids too are coming from a place of like, they're not doing something to get paid. They're paying to do something. Right. So it's like, wow, that's a big mental shift and like a huge responsibility. Mm -hmm. Mike always talks, you're always talking about the responsibility that you feel. Oh, the fear? To the kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Paralyzing <laughs> the fear. fear that, that fear of God. Yeah, it's a, I'm sure you experience this too. Maybe not as much. It, Ian tends to be ahead, more ahead of schedule than I am. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's that it's a good fear. It's it's that sense of um, responsibility and and loyalty to the to the membership when you know you have a 9 a.m. rehearsal on Saturday and you have to deliver. You can't just you can't show up and not have the material or something yeah. planned to be productive with their time. And then you're managing you a creative process that isn't yeah. doesn't know what time it is. Well I think yeah. that, like and some of the scariest the, parts for me are when we have to first tell the kids what the show is. That's like it's like the Emperor's new clothes. Like, am I naked or is this cool? Like, I, I'm not sure because I feel like I'm naked because no one's reacting yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So either the explanation or whenever we first play the music for the kids, we sit them all down, we explain the show and it's it's that time where you kind of know if it's going to work or not because it's the first time you really have had to explain it out loud and you watch the reaction and as it's happening it's like I kind of love that I still get nervous and a little sick to my stomach because it means you haven't had you don't have it all figured out and there's still like a human condition as a creative person that you're still terrified that you might suck oh yeah and that you don't want to let people down and, and the expectations are like ever ever so high every single time you have to do it again and tell me this like I know that that there's a certain I would call it maybe like a small level of denial but when I play a track for, for a new person like let's say I've been working on something for my solo record which is the most isolated thing I do and you know you play it from I play it for my wife or play it for you or a friend or something for the first time um, actually this this more applies to doing things in the commerce world but when you play it you instantly hear it through their ears <laughs> and then you you know all of a sudden, you know everything about it. Like everything that sucks is like yeah. blatant. And you're like, oh, I've been yeah. working on this for six months. How did I not hear all this before? And usually, it's like, oh, I, I knew that, but I was like a forty. Like God. the worst is when that happens, like in an A and R guy's office or something. Oh wow! And you're like, oh, this. I hope his ears are as good as mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you hear it. You you sense body language and like. I even experienced somebody like, 
like they get to the chorus and then all of a you see their ha their hands slide over the mouse like they want to check their email like little little body language things oh. start to happen you can feel I would it. have like a, like a small <laughs> meltdown I think. yeah he's <laughs> like no cause see what I was doing here see what I really want to happen see cause I, the plugin didn't quite work I start getting like Wow. Ultra nervous. Those are funny it's, things. It's funny, but that like everything you just described is um, not to get too specific with the marching arts is what I, I've been such an advocate of of making sure that the adjudication recognizes that mm -hmm. with how they present themselves on their commentary. Yeah, the the level of of uh, respect, en engagement, mm -hmm. respect. Oh, yeah. um, excitement that a little bit of empathy it Just might it might be the 30 second show that you're watching that day but for those kids that are out on the floor or out on the field yeah. um well, and even and now, the staff, too. yeah, the it's, kids that are the staff, it's these people the that are just time. like, they just aged out. They're yeah. like 23, like, I, I skipped college to do indoor, now I'm just starting yeah. school and I'm trying to write my first show. These could be the next great minds, but man, if you're not careful with the commentary, they can yeah, kind of get just, a, And just crush. whether it's mm -hmm. the commentary is in a positive light or a negative light, if, if the, there's a level of respect and acknowledgement of what you just mentioned, how much time and effort was was put into that I think it, it kind of mitigates the, the highs and lows yeah you know there's a there can be a mutual respect and people can disagree well there can be a sympathy with understanding hey guys this isn't working right now I know it's just a work in progress but there's always like a delivery system I think that yeah. people are more willing to take the criticism when they know it comes from a sympathetic understanding background like I can tell the performers are young we still got to work on performance engagement blah 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 there's all those buzzwords you can throw in that make the person that's listening to the tape feel like okay you get it you yeah. see that these kids are not like yeah well vetted monsters i think i think it's it's almost similar to if you're if you're in a gigging band and you're, you're playing different city every night and you're just you know you're, you're on the road for for four months that it might be you know city number 50 for you mm -hmm. but those people bought tickets to see you and you you have to give them Oh, yeah. The show of your life, you have to give them everything. Yeah, yep. that's your. It's like the, the 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 implied contract that you have. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. the mark of a not only a professional but just an artist that they go up and they put that much into it every single time. Mm -hmm. and like the consistency of always being on all the time. Yeah, you can never let up. I, I think never that all kind of like up. encapsulates a similar thing of what we're talking about. Like, <clears throat> For me, what it was, it was always about just trying to be the best I could possibly be. Yeah. Not even just be good, not be the best player in the world, but like be the best player I could or the best composer I could. I want to be the best at indoor that I possibly can. I want to be the best at composing for front ensembles. You know, whatever it was, I did have that like aggressive drive. I did have that kind of all the way since I've been a kid. I think I've been extremely competitive and wanting to be the best. And I think I, as I got to be more of an adult, I turned it more towards, okay, I need to be the best version of me. But younger, I literally wanted to be the best, you know, when you have that impetuous, yeah. oh, totally. youthful drive. And I think you do need a little and of that. All those locks. Yeah, the glorious Wendy's locks. <laughs> Yellow, oh, yes. green, and full of beans. <laughs> so what happened when I, you have, you know, this this line of mallets, mm -hmm. and I hear your story started on drum set, and that was a passion. Yeah. At what point did it happen in college? Did you yeah, really embrace so that? 
melodic world of percussion. That was an interesting thing because I came in and I auditioned, and the only reason I got into the school was because I was a competent drum set player. Yeah. My um, there's a guy that actually not too far from this neighborhood. Do you know Rob Slack? No. Um, he was a uh, teaching it like out of his studio. My cousin, the orchestral percussionist, took lessons with him. Fantastic performer. He plays with the Pacific Symphony, um, and he tried to teach me mallets and uh we hung out like a couple years ago at my cousin's wedding and i was like hey rob it's ian do you remember he's like oh yeah of course man how's it going i was like man i'm really sorry i was so crappy he's like god you never practice <laughs> i would show up every day i'm in high school trying to learn marimba i've got this crappy little xylophone i never practiced I, he was like i for sure wrote you off completely Whoa. like because i just you know i was just sort of half-assing the gig i would like work on my snare drum uh stuff but i was really just wanting to play drum set and then in college it was like yo man that's not going to happen here you're gonna learn your scales, you're gonna play marimba, you're gonna play vibes. And so it was just one of those things I decided like, well, if I'm gonna do this, let's go. So I was playing piano every day, playing marimba every day. Then the next thing you know, that kind of became a weird addiction and obsession to get better at that stuff since I was yeah. so bad at it relative to that. And so then do I, you think you brought a new perspective to that stuff by being a drum set player that actually made you stand out? Um, well, that's a weird question to ask somebody. I think the coordination and linear understanding of how things lay out helps you with some stuff, but the lack of like tactile awareness of note accuracy, that just takes a long time to learn. And even piano, you have 10 fingers down. So there's always like a facility that you have and the intervals don't change. Now you've got expanding intervals. You've got all these things that if you're not used to it, it's like, this isn't even, Yeah. I don't even know what monster this I is. Think it, it, I speak on it. it might be easier for me to speak on that so he doesn't have to talk about himself. But <laughs> yeah, uh, I asked the wrong guy that Ian's, question. Ian's, group, <laughs> Ian, Ian's groups are, I would say, um, e extremely aware of vertical alignment. And uh, most of the time when we, we use the phrase like quantize, it's, it's in a negative context when you're talking about, you know, maybe somebody's drum set feel. But in the sense of an ensemble where you're talking about, you know, 18 kids trying to play together spread across, you know, 30 yards. Um, it's it's definitely a challenge to get that that level of vertical alignment and Pocket. that that quant yeah, yeah mm -hmm. that, that that quantization of of, uh, of uh, front to back or even side to side. And Ian's groups are always on the on the top level of that. I, I would say thank you, sir. In such a way that that they stand out. And that is 100% from my drum set playing. That's cool. And like that, a lot of that comes down to that one time Russ Miller opened up my eyes and showed me the universe, the space between the notes, mm -hmm. the real space, not the notated space, to understand what's on the front edge and the back edge and what the true center of time is and teaching even young kids that don't know what it means to be on the front or the back side of it, to teach them tendencies to learn how to sway and move naturally in the music and be organic about it, I think my entire background as a rhythm section player and when I started playing a lot more keyboards that helped me start to spot the trend of mallet players not being very good at that because I'd be working with these guys that are great mallet players terrible at fixing rhythms in the ensemble because they weren't really ever in charge of rhythms they were always leaning on someone and a drum set player having so much dependency on <coughs> or not having any dependency on anybody else I mean like there here's the pocket you're gonna go with me or you're gonna go home right is that ownership, whereas everyone else is like, just play together, we have to communicate as an ensemble, all this stuff. Yeah, as we all drag together. Yeah. You know, like our, it's interdependency, yeah. it's not actual being like 
metronomically independent and really understanding what tempo is. So totally, and even within, this is sort of a, an offshoot, but I spent a lot of time studying sort of just what you're leaning on as a drum set player. I mean, there are players that they lean on the physicality of their right hand and that gives them a different feel. You know, like you have somebody like Stuart Copeland mm. who everything feels like it's sort of like pushing against mm -hmm. how much his right hand is right is pushing. So it's interesting to think that as in big groups like that, there's that tension release that you have and, and trying to even that out so that everybody's mm -hmm. grooving together as opposed to one guy's pulling, the other one's... Given you know, the environment, it's, it's definitely, um, if you want to create uh, a feel with the ensemble, you, you tend to have to start with perfection to right. understand what and the mathematical because math yep. the math is is you can't dispute the math like whatever that rhythm is it's a mathematical value there's a certain truth to it so understanding that truth and then creating that variation from the truth where I think in in you know pop sense or jazz sense that you can create your own feel and your own uh, interpretation of time without ever experiencing that truth or studying that truth like there's there's a lot of players who just they just have that thing because there's only and one of them sense. they don't have right. like four other drum right. set players that have to match it exactly and then they got three guys <laughs> that unless it's like it. james brown's band <laughs> <laughs> there might be yeah. that many right <laughs> so I, I think in this activity it is it's a weird thing where you have to establish like a benchmark which is a mathematical truth and then you you can mess with that once you achieve it. And I'm, I'm acutely aware of that in, in producing and engineering too because I see that, um, you know, in in laying down a drum track and using Beat Detective, mm -hmm. making it technically perfect, but arranging it such that, you know, like low notes on marimba are gonna sound more behind the beat than, than the high notes do be just by virtue of the way the transient is and how wide a single hit is so like when I look, I can quantize a drum groove. But if I've used a, used a fat snare drum sound, I can see that the mind is gonna m think that's laid back because the trans mm -hmm. the stick hits it, but the sound actually takes a while to happen. Right. So it feels behind the beat. Whereas that same groove, quantized exactly the same way with a really snappy snare drum, is gonna feel less behind the beat. So a lot of that's so arrangement oriented. Do you, you think can aim for perfection and get a lot of that is like you just kind of know what to do like right yeah. it's like because I've, I've tried to explain like the inner workings of like well how do you arrange this or like something that technical you can tell people all that stuff but really i think we all know the answer is like well yeah you don't hear it it sounds crappy fix it now that sounds good i that's for me is like when people ask me the super in-depth questions is like you might not have good enough ears to hear it, so I can give you some guidelines, but you gotta just feel it. You gotta know when it's right, right. and then Yeah, back it off. just reminded me of. Do you remember the Stuart Copeland quote? We talked about this twenty five years ago. That's exactly what you're gonna say. Where he says where somebody asks, How do you get how do you get that, that space between swing and straight? And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I either play swing or I play straight. And then <laughs> we're sitting there going, No you don't <laughs> No, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> but it's awesome. Yep, and I'll buy the record. It's, yeah, yeah, it's the it thing. I, it's like, you know, when, you know, like 
schools of like Japanese drummers just try and study Steve Gadd and like they want to know what the they want to break it down they want to do it or anyone that's like a highly intellectual drumming community tries to isolate this thing like they might just be a little sloppy you should not try and transcribe like Art Blakey verbatim you have to get the feel right you just got to know what the sound is yeah and I think like and look at it from different angles you know like when you watch yeah. Steve Gadd or you hear Steve Gadd and you watch him you're like oh well, part of it's because he's doing this while he's drumming. <laughs> it's like if you want to play the Steve Gaddisms, you can't be like, well, you know, when I transcribed it, I think it's a sextuplet. Like, dude, you see him doing it, or you watch him and he's only playing this high off the drum and the hi hat, and you're like, well, that's why it sounds like that. It's not a studio trick. There's not mics. He's playing like a third of the volume that you're playing. I think yeah. it, it might be a, a better angle to just study idioms rather than individuals. Mm. Like a like a New Orleans type feel, right? And then you can kind of put that together and go, oh, well, a lot of what Steve Gadd is very mm. that, and maybe with a little bit of this, and then like you said, like a Brazilian feel. Really. Yeah, I think <clears throat> that kind of ties into even more so of all the things that we're talking about, and not just like imitating one artist or whatever, but like understanding like a whole genre so that you can grab all the flavors from that genre not just like what that one person did in that genre and that can be the same for like as kids are coming up and they're trying to learn all these kids want to be i want to be a front ensemble arranger mm -hmm. it's like okay you can if you spend all the time trying to figure out my tricks of how i orchestrate it you'll have no idea why i did it because you're not actually listening to what the whole music is yeah like i created a danny elfman type moment here you're now more worried about, well, what are the stickings in this? Not like, well, let's study like film score music that's in this genre. Then you actually have a flavor palette to pull from and you can see the context of what a particular composer or arranger is doing. Yeah. But I don't think enough kids are looking at like... They're understand yeah, not I understanding. Not even kids, maybe adults too. I mean, just people that are learning how to be composers and arrangers aren't getting a wider scope of what they're trying to emulate. Yeah, understanding like why those decisions were made, not just that the decision. The decision. Mm -hmm. or, yeah, in a vacuum. I think that's, I mean, studying Steve Gadd is a perfect one, even though it's an old reference. It's like, there's a reason why there's Steve Gadd, and then you, what's before him? You know, there's, there emerged Steve Gadd because he was a unique individual who somehow was able to drum from his unique personality. So it's like, and Mr. Copeland, or all these different guys that have a real unique identity, to copy them is to turn down the volume on yourself. You know, mm -hmm. and it might be like a useful exercise to just sort of like do it and go, oh, it feels like that to do it. Does that feel like me? Does it resonate with me and what I want to say? Right. I, yeah, I think like what you were talking about before, analyzing what makes Stuart Copeland sound like Stuart Copeland or... Um, it's a good tool for your craft. What's the guy's name from Blink-182? Travis Barker. Travis Barker. Like, I kind of put them in the same category where they're very right hand lead like kind of just what, what you were saying about the weight of that mm -hmm. right hand kind of running the show rather than because I mean you listen to Travis Barker there's you couldn't put a Met on some of that stuff right um, I think but he's very but it feels accurate. good yeah it fe and Stuart Copeland same thing mm -hmm. it feels good but I think the, the house of cards is sorry to interrupt but if you were to walk up to Stuart Copeland while he's playing something like that like Sending out and and you just grabbed his right hand. I think everything else would fall apart. Whereas if you grab, if you went to Vinny and he's playing something and you just grabbed his right hand, he would still go be going. Absolutely, because he's not like leaning on it. Yeah. Yes, as like his stitch. Yeah. So one of the things that Russ Miller was explaining to me as like 
categorizing me, he's like, you're not the only person like plays like this, but he's like, but you're a pattern drummer. Your tempo is based off the pattern you're playing, right. not the true understanding of like where the big beats are happening regardless of the pattern. So if one small part of your pattern shifts, you're allowing that to collapse the overall tempo, then you're expanding the accordion back out to make up for the yeah. motion. And he's like, you, there's a lot of pattern drummers out there. You learn all these patterns, but you don't truly understand time as a global like bouncing egg that's hitting every single spot every time you're not listening to the sound of the drums and he would always talk about this like imagining like it's a bouncing ball where there's constant inertia i don't know if you ever saw the steve jordan like underground dvd that he did about time playing and he talks about that about seeing this as this bouncing ball and then russ would teach me how to hear the drum set ring and really hear and like listen to the way the cymbals are ringing when you hear that kick drum when you hit the snare drum, like listen to the toms ringing, and all of a sudden you would hear long note, long note, long note, instead of yeah. boop. That, that's wow. so nerve wracking to hear yeah. tight. And so then he taught me how to hear that, and I was like, explosion brain. Yeah. And that's when I realized, like, to play all the stuff that I used to be able to play, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. But it made me see it. I, like, it was like I saw the Matrix, and I immediately now understood why everything was wrecked. Yeah. But I took that knowledge, and now I give it to other people. But right. I just couldn't do it to myself to like go back for the next four years and reinvent everything mm, I would need to do yeah. to like internalize that concept of tempo. It's kind of cool though. It's almost like you he burst or he like encouraged the educator in you. Well, I said educator. Emphasis. <laughs> he encouraged the educator in you. While somehow sort of discouraging the player. <laughs> and also keeping me from ever kicking again. And then ironically, Weird. I wrote a session. Um, I wrote a bunch of marching band tunes. And um, we were at East West uh -huh. on Sunset. And he was on the session. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was uh -huh. crazy. He was playing marching snare on a session for my... He's like, what are you going to say? Hey, what's up, Russ? How you doing, man? Now he's I'm like, the boss. Yeah. <laughs> it was a crazy... We had a good conversation about it. And I run That's into awesome. him at the NAMM show and stuff like that all the time. And I just always tell him, like, man, that truth, that honesty. I never played again after that. But, <laughs> <laughs> you're but now you're playing for me on this session, so that's cool. And but if, like, yeah, this, if you're in this chair and your name's on the page, you're obviously doing something right. Yeah. How interesting is it that the way we think really manifests itself in interesting ways in how we play because I remember a similar thing like I went and took a lesson with Dave Weppel and at this point I was I think I was 19 and I was obsessed with time <laughs> and drumming and playing to a click and um, I have this I would call it kind of an issue but technically it's called synesthesia where I hear rhythms and see shapes so I was like writing shapes on my snare drum and like playing the shapes and freaking out and like and I, I got a chance to go hang out with Weckle, like one of my heroes. Um, and there was always like Vinny and Weckle, of course, back then, right? And there's always something about Weckle's playing that, that I didn't like as much as Vinny's and that felt less like it had, like you were saying, this thing. Mm -hmm. But it had more of a pattern-oriented thing, but obviously he's so great. And when I went there, I remember asking him, like, it was almost like I had, a, I had like, a chance to talk with Yoda in a way. Yeah. And I was like, so, do you, you know, see music as being, you know, quarter note to quarter note, and, like, and then you arrange the grid evenly between those, or are you thinking, like, every note? Like, when you see a sextuplet, do you see, like, six groups that repeat, or you see, 
like, and he's like, oh, the only way I can think is just every single note. And I was like, interesting. You sound like that's how you think. Yeah. Well, and then I remember watching the Dave Weckl Back to Basics video with that sweet, like, the that dark red recording custom kit. And he's like, and he's got the sweet hair, his drumming shoes, and the sticks. But I remember he said, there's the one sequence where he starts the the sequencer. And he's like, you know, you want to play this, you want to make sure every single note is exactly with the grid. I don't know if it's a sequencer or a met that's just set to 16th note subdivision. Yeah. yeah. And I remember like, oh, like every note has to be in time. Like <laughs> as a kid, like, yeah. a boo. And then of course you fast forward 10 years later and the same thing, like every note, like, damn it. Dave Markle told me I was going back to basics and I forgot. <laughs> damn you. I got distracted by the hair and the stigma. Yeah. Cause you grow up around a lot of drummers like, oh, you don't want to play like Dave Weckl. I was like, yeah, God forbid you play in time with a great sound and a great touch and good <laughs> Shit, I should have played more like Dave Weckl. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's true. You can hear, you can kind of reverse engineer people's thinking by what you hear. Mm. And a lot of those great groove drummers, there's a certain, um, this sounds like a negative word, but a certain maybe ignorance to things that actually allows them to to not focus too much on the trees and see the forest. Yep. And like you just get, wow, what's so powerful about that groove? And then it's time for them to take a solo and you're like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's like those people that have both though, yep. it's a transcendent sort of understanding. They get they get the, the think, zoom in and the yeah, zoom it's, out. It's, it's the way that the, what we hear as, as the notes, the, the, the attack of whatever the instrumentation is, but it's the way those attacks communicate with each other which gives us that sense of um, it's it's almost symmetry even though sometimes it's not symmetrical right but it gives us that sense of comfort yeah uh, I, I'm thinking of uh, like John Bonham right now where it if you were to quantize like his kick drum every time he boom every every right. double beat on the on the kick drum it's it's not even close if you were to analyze that but the way it's he, the way he, those notes that communicate with what was played previous and what is about to be played, it, everything just falls right where you want it. Oh yeah. And there's a comfort, and I, th I think that those type of drummers instinctually know where that is. Mm -hmm. I was writing about this this morning for a, a drumming chapter in the, in the book, but isn't it weird that especially drumming, all music exists in the in your memory, so like. And drumming is like the most focused in version of that. It's like, yeah, that feels like something just because of your memory of the first snap. And then each successive beat you hear re relates to a memory of the one before. And you're basically, you're not like making time, you're just representing it. Hmm. It's such a strange thing that, that well, we deal with. Into the feel thing, and kind of similar to that as well, like, I think some skills that drum set players aren't growing up with now, um, especially like with the prevalence of like gospel chops, where it's like just basically play really loud sixteenth note patterns and mix them up in any. Like a lot I don't of attitude. It's like so we're gonna wrap this up here. Or just <laughs> play any dynamics or just like no, just as many different variations on tempo yeah. to lose the band, but like. Because they're just beating the hell out of the instrument. They're playing to a grid. They're playing perfect. Because they all want to be hip-hop drummers playing that stuff. It's just so many videos come out. These guys are phenomenal technicians. 
but like it doesn't feel good it's just like on on the front of the beat it's just kind of like ah so aggressive and then you watch like marching guys like rudimental players they don't really have any like swagger as much because they don't slur stuff out like they used to back in like the old days when things would be a little bit more like even traditional american rudimental drumming that right. has so much freedom and inter and i remember yeah exactly <laughs> but like the first time i heard when i heard brazilian swing i was like what is that? Da, 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 da. What? What? What is that? What's which that one moving? is it? Show me on paper. Wait. wait yeah, I, which note do I move to the side? And then it was like, no, dude, you just gotta feel. It's like, no, you gotta. I don't even. How do hands do that? Yeah. And that was the doorway for me of understanding feel and learning the the West African stuff that wasn't like exactly metric. There has to be a swagger to it. And being around those guys that like that's just a direct result of them having playing the drum weird and strange it wasn't like you know we're gonna take regular 16th notes and we're gonna play play them brazilian style it's like a tradition yeah. that just came out of like well we just kind of play with our left hands weak so it turned into like it's, it's right. funny that it's a little bit of a tangent but how important sticking is to feel mm. oh my it's, god it's just not the ergonomics the and gravity yeah it, it's so important sticking is underrated yeah but well and that Especially studying like in our world, yeah, I think, I think it's very. But bringing that experience of moral percussion yeah. of non-perfectly quantized rhythms mm -hmm. made me more aware of like finding the little nuggets in the space between the rhythms, and thinking about things that we don't necessarily. I rarely get to apply any of that stuff because it's very difficult to replicate that with kids. But yeah. as a rhythmic musician, having that awareness of when something has the right amount of swagger. When you know if a guy is playing jazz but his ride cymbal skip beat is in a weird spot, you're like, yeah, I don't buy that. Mm -hmm. Right. That's not legit. Not for this <laughs> style. It's not da ga da in this one. Ding, da ding, ding, da dam. Just yep. for this particular era of music. Exactly. And when you know those things, you can at least write more idiomatically, even if it's for marching percussion. You know the isms of a style or the isms of a of a feel interp that can kind of be metrically written to be more legit. Yeah, but you're doing it out of a conscious effort, not like, well, we're playing swing, so this is what we do. And yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, and that's one. Of, I mean, you honed in on one of the more mysterious little things about mm. about swing and jazz, which is that it's like that skip note is the one, man. When it's a more like a sixteenth than a triplet or not, yeah, like and why? And then if it's more like a triplet, can you play sixteenth note fills? But if it's more like a sixteenth note, can you still play triplet? How do you and yeah, you just you gotta study. You just play no chip, no yeah, fills. <laughs> exactly. You gotta study what all the good guys did yeah. and master their vocabulary to the point where you know that you're speaking the right language. Right. Yeah, that's the strange thing about idioms is they sort of enslave you. They're self-defining. It's like all the good stuff's already been done. Just try not to suck. Like with those styles that you're not comfortable with, like what this is this is a uh, a, what, a Chicago shuffle, uh, so Purdy shuffle. Can I just play that for everything? You know, yeah. or everyone has like the in the book, like the yeah. one that's terrible, and it's like on the book that's what it looks like you're supposed to play. Wait, so four on the floor, and like every student they do, they're like both hands playing together. Yeah. Then you watch someone play that shuffle, you're like, could you have notated it any worse, or like made it any more wrong about wow. like the difference between the heights and how you play a fill and you watch those guys play it um did you ever have any of those old robin ford albums yeah with like tom breckline playing drums yeah the one with talk to your daughter yes one. Yeah. oh one of the best drum sounds and best shuffle players in the history of life 
Oh my god. And you look at him and he's one of the guys who rushes the most with no with no qualms <laughs> ever too. But Dude, he's great. it feels so good. That shuffle style. I remember getting turned on to that really young, but when you don't see what they're doing, it's almost impossible to know what they're actually physically doing behind the kick yeah, to get to that make feel. It happen. There's a guy, a local guy named Frank Contanola. I think C O T O. Um, rooted down in Laguna Beach mm. and he has one of the most amazing feels, and it's he's. I think we call it Stugin. I don't know how many people call it Stugin, but um, that. That's in between. Jack White's drummer. Meg. <laughs> I said drummer. Oh, oh, ouch. oh, oh. I love you, Meg. Edit. Okay. Don't know. Um, oh. In his one of his new bands, not her. What's the, the, the Rocket Tours? The Rough Pack. Oh, okay. What's his name? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know his name, but that big washy kind of like yeah. I Ringo think I sent, question mark I sent you swing. that link. The the uh, the name of the song is Apartment Thirty Three. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Is there's in Paris? Paris gig? Yeah. Google it. Just, yeah. yeah. Google it. Apartment Thirty Three, Paris gig. Yeah, well, yeah, and I think amazing. that's a part of this community like in the marching thing that yes you listen to it outside but a lot of people don't equate like well you couldn't do that in here you couldn't play something with feel here it's like you, you could <laughs> there's a way to do that but if you don't have access to really understanding how to do it yourself very hard to teach that yeah you know like so for me i feel way more comfortable teaching that Daru, stuff to our drums. Daru jones i think is his name uh, okay Daru jones yeah Daru jones look that up yeah yeah, so it's it's easier to choose one guy and and make him. Yeah, like so you could do that feel, but it's like you wouldn't want like the pit players. Dun, dun, ding, dun, dun. It's like ah, stop, don't do that. Yeah, but you could create a moment like that with your drum set player if you have that. But you can't send the kid a video and go figure it out. You have to like have that knowledge. Like I can teach yeah. a kid how to play like a Brazilian samba groove on the kit that's more authentic, but it's probably not going to get it for the first year. Like I, it would, I mean, to really mm -hmm. understand the style. You have to play in like a bateria, you got to do the thing, you have to know the calls, just to understand how to do even just the ride rhythm the right way, right. and have it feel like carnival, you know? Mm -hmm. There's that swagger. And seeing scantily clad women, I mean, that's what we used to do Brazilian <laughs> gigs all, part all the time. <laughs> there used to be this place before it burned down in Redondo Beach called Samba, and we would do like a dinner party, and it would be me, and like I would play Kaisha, like the snare drum, and then there'd be someone else playing Surdu, and there'd be two dancing girls, and I would just do the whistles and the calls, and everyone's saying, Brazil, Brazil, and you just play this gig and hype everyone up at this Chavascaria. And that's like, you learn more about like how to swing by doing that, just by watching the girls dance and the experience of what that's like, than like if you go like, okay, I've got my Brazilian book of rhythms. All right, I've got a recording of it. I'm listening to it. Yep, I think I got it. I think I understand the swing. I okay. practice on my pad. We're good. You know, you got to go do it. And so at Pulse, you bring the girls in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That goes well. Yeah. There's like nobody at Broken City Auditions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a tribute to Rio, ladies. <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry, guys. Brought the pain. <laughs> Brought all my Brazilian dancing girls down. That's amazing. I wonder why those... Well, I guess it makes a lot of sense that those cultures um, versus their older cultures, so there is more of like a looseness and like a, I don't know, a more organic quality to those rhythms. And I guess the it's also what the we have is jazz, I guess, as Americans. It's so intellectualized, though. There's so much 
of like mm-hmm. the Brazilian stuff. When you go out there and study, you can go in an area like where the samba school like rehearses, and you watch the kids bring in like sticks from the forest and stuff because they don't have drumsticks. They're like carving them up themselves, and you see the little kid. And the little kids know all the grooves, everything. They're eight years old. They've been watching their dad or their older brother doing this since they were kids. And you just be like in the middle when we were in um, Salvador, this area called the Pelarino, where we were studying. Um, they would just have the dudes, and they would just start going through the city, and you poke your head out. What? What's going on? You go into a cafe at night, and the guys are playing a more tamed down version of it with all just handheld instruments, like um, playing cavaquinho and pandeiro, and there's all this hip stuff going on, but it's like, it's not written down. None of it's written down. It's all oral tradition, just like African music, but in America, with the writing down of music and the intellectualization of it, I think it sterilizes it because it makes it so everyone can access it and study it but then you're not experiencing it like how the guys who started losing the essence of life yeah it's it's funny i took a lesson with um around the same time i took that lesson with dave weckel when i was maybe 20 i was a little older maybe 21 or 22 i took a lesson with joey heredia oh yeah and i remember one of the little one of the areas that he really schooled me on was he was showing me some stuff around clave and he showed me some really intense uh, I guess salsa music, and and he was like, "Tell me if it's three two or two three Yeah, and he and of course, for I don't know how he did it because there was only there was like fifty percent chance of getting it wrong, but I was always wrong. I don't I almost thought he was tricking me and just like, telling me I was wrong, but he's like, my brother doesn't play drums, and he always knows which one it is. You know what the secret is? What is it? The downbeat of the Montuno is always on the two side of the clave. Okay. Always the downbeat is the two side of the clave. If the B side it starts with an upbeat, whatever it is, uh-huh. if, if the beat starts on an upbeat, that's the three side. And if, if it starts what, on if a downbeat, turn it on. Two. Do you know where the beat is, no matter what? Well, you gotta know. Like you can also check. <laughs> you know where it started. Like if you like, if you, you can hear the bongo is. bell, because yeah. the bongo bell only has one variation. The isolated one upbeat. That's also the two side. Okay. Um, and you know, if you hear even even the cascada pattern, it starts on the downbeat. You get the one two. That's uh-huh. where you know beat two is, <laughs> or the two side of the clave. Michael Spiro taught me that one. That's it, cool. It almost invariably never fails until you get into like, like the deep rumba, like Wawanko stuff, like Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, all like the hardcore Cuban stuff. That's like all the traditional folk recordings. That's uh-huh. like, it's so deep, and they're kind of like in six eight, kind of like in four four, super milky. That sounds like what he showed me because oh, whatever yeah. he showed me was just like I'm gonna show you something that's impossible to decode. Oh yeah, then he gave head. you like the, yeah. the the secrets of the Amazon. <laughs> it totally was. I was like, I hear it, but yeah. I don't know which one where it starts. Yeah, like I can lock into it. Well, because they have this stuff. Um, a lot of that stuff will sound like. Yeah, it's all kind of like rubber banded out. <laughs> yeah. So it's like it's three two clave, but it's tripletized basically. Yeah. So, but then you hear pop pop. What two three? If you don't know where the the rest mm-hmm. of the patterns fit, your brain can hear it like you're not only on the wrong side of the clave, you're like inside of a triplet of the wrong beat, <laughs> and you're like, what? 
and all the ladies are dancing. You're like, how the hell do they know where the temple yeah. is? I'm like, I'm a learned musician. I should know where the downbeat is. You watch a little six-year-old. She's doing the moves. She knows exactly where it <laughs> is. Like, going to McDonald's. Yeah. I'm the out. humility of studying other cultures where, like, the rhythmic complexity is so dense. And we're like, okay, guys, let's work on a triplet one here. Uh -huh. we're, gonna, we're so, like, behind as far as, like, uh, a culture. Sure yeah. <laughs> Culturally, we're rhythmically behind in, like, our general sentiment, you know? Yeah. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lull. Lull. We experienced a lull. It's, is that the hour is lull? Is possible? It might be. Let's check. I think we're there. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. It's perfect. It says an hour and four minutes, and I probably started that four minutes early. Well, there it is. A natural end to a beautiful podcast. Yeah. Cool. So Very what's cool. up? Let me ask a question. Mm. Have you started working on this season of Pulse yet? Fuck no. You got to edit that out. Yeah. Oh, are we still are we still going? <laughs> oh yeah, we're rolling, man. Oh, That's awesome. Right. It's out there. <clears throat> all right, sweet. Dude, I'll be able to add the first beat to our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Mean one. So, and kind of not, but sort of. We started. Well, I think but that John tends to create, like, we talked about what we want to do this year already. Yeah. So that has kind of already been decided concept and then he'll go and kind of like create a more cohesive visual or like concept identity before he brings it to me because i'm like the first guy like oh well, but, but then how do we get there and how do we do this i start immediately poking holes he's just like shut the hell up let me tell you the concept <laughs> and like then i'll play you the music but um we already had an inspiration for it last year kind of mid-season and we were like this could be the next year's show maybe oh, awesome so when he gave me the thumbs up i was like all right we're gonna do it so that's cool so it starts is, conceptual usually. yeah always yeah always starts conceptually at least as far as does it ever start with a, a piece of content and that leads to conceptual or yeah it might be like mixed media it might be yeah maybe it's a choreography thing maybe it's some sort of like drip like more like mental idea but um i think lately we've just been trying to find something that our visual creative folks can immediately embrace and create a story and a picture to score music to. That's great. You know, versus trying to like. You all need a sometimes, star yeah. In a way. Yeah, you know, sometimes I try to like bring the movie score to life first before having a clear vision of what like the director was going to put on the screen. Yeah. So now we're trying to be a little bit more um, specific about what visually is going to occur, so the marriage of like audio visual is a little bit closer from the get go. Versus like kind of reverse engineering, like well, uh, let's see what happens in the drill, and then we might yeah. tweak some stuff. That's cool. It's so interesting how I'm sure every year is an evolution like that. Oh like, god, yeah. Because when we met the other day, it was a similar thing. Just kind of what's not broken that we don't, you know, we don't right. want to like ruin something that worked last year or right. the year before or overthink some of the yeah the value of spont spontaneity. That's yeah. what happens to us sometimes. Is like overthinking how to correct on a process that was already good They're like no but we can do better let's better the crap out of this and then rarely does that ever happen yeah, yeah. just like western culture does with those rhythms right you know? exactly like, it's the same thing like we especially now that you know it's it's a slightly more officialized i would say my involvement with broken city we don't want to ruin how it worked last year which i thought was really nice those different paradigms of right. bringing, you know, somebody who was in the activity a zillion years ago, me, but comes from a singer-songwriter 
point of view and then you guys which are in it like I don't want to jump in and be like hey guys I want to do it with you <laughs> you know like and, and blow it and ruin it you know yeah it's, it's, it's cool to do it that way mm. keep it keep it not working and working at the same time yeah well I, I think there's like a comfort level that John and I have with each other after doing it for so long he knows what I need to have enough information to go forward yeah. and he also knows what information not to give me so that I don't get caught up on crap that doesn't totally affect the music uh, like I don't need to worry about the functionality of the costume change or like he's like you need to just get the music in this form and then we can start playing with it from there he's good about like masterminding the process of how we get from event to event even just in the design process not necessarily the event in the show like right. we know the priority is like we have this mashup we have to finish the show with. So we need to like actually work on that first to make sure we know where the destination is gonna be, if it's gonna oh. be worth it or not. Nice. It's almost like sometimes we have to take a journey into another part of the show to see if it's like, is this gonna pay off? Is this, can we come up with something? Oh yeah, this is actually really badass. We can eventually develop this into something later, not right now, mark that, tag it, save it. Now let's go back to the opener. And yeah, so you have to random access if you have to. Just yeah, like, on your linearly. Exactly. I just thought of like more than a dozen questions I wanted to ask you. So, Great. sure, can we do this again? Yeah, like absolutely. Podcast part two. You bet, man. That'd be awesome. Yeah, it's like, fun. We'll dive into more of the, the process and you know what you're willing to share. It's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks for like coming. Ten minutes away. It's easy. Yeah, dude, that's great. Thanks for having me, guys. Whole series. Much appreciated, guys. Thank you so much for uh, listening, watching, whatever, whatever it is you're doing. It's Mike. This is Ian. I'm Adam. See you guys soon. Ringing sound, poison rain, don't come around, here again, I will cover you, you will feel no pain, wait for the blue, sky again. Cause the money's gone